0: Good morning, I am Pastor Brian, in case you didn't recognize me, but uh, is the shine too bad, anybody still getting used to it, can't see, I'll try not to tilt down, is that too bad, (laughs) I'll I'll just sit here for a minute, let you acclimate, and uh, that way you won't miss any of the message, so we'll just have a moment of stare at the head, no, (laughs) all right, (laughs) Grab your Bible. I'm excited to be back. I listened to Jacob's sermon, and uh, he did a great job bridging us between where I left off and where we're picking up today. So grab your Bible. We're still in 2 Corinthians. We're going to pick up in chapter 5, and let me throw out a warning today that this is going to be in the, you know, we get nerdy from time to time. This is going to be in the ultra level. So I apologize for that. Um, You're going to have to think hard about this. And it's not that we like to get nerdy for nerdy's sake, so much as it is that if you could really see the perspective that the Scripture teaches us about life, it would blow you away. And oftentimes we don't see it because we we think we know what it says and we're wrong. We we have a cultural understanding of something and we're not seeing seeing the thing the way God wants us to see it. It's kind of like you're putting pieces to a puzzle together. I just want you to have the opportunity to step back and see the whole picture, to see how this is supposed to fit together, to see how the narrative works together, to see how your story fits into God's story, to see how your worldview should be shaped by God's worldview. And if you could see it, I think the same thing would happen to you that happened to the Apostle Paul. It redirected his life. It gave him courage in the midst of fear. It gave him hope in his greatest Despair, and I hope that as we go over something that at first may feel very technical, I hope you will open your mind a little bit, receive the biblical version of this worldview, and let's walk forward with it in the text and make sense of what your life is for. And so, we have a a large task set before us this morning, so we need to work hard, think hard, and dive in, and in some cases, forget what we think we know and start over. This is one of those passages that if you use modern lingo and you read this text, you will completely misunderstand it and possibly get the opposite meaning from it that it actually intends to convey. So we have to kind of take our words, deconstruct those words, rebuild those words with a biblical definition, and then we can read the passage. Does that make any sense at all? So we've got to work with this. It's like when your kids watch the Flintstones and they sing about having a gay old time, right? And you respond and go, whoa, 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 no. Uh, What you're thinking is not what that song was about. You see what I'm saying? Things change. Culture changes. Words change. In this particular context, maybe not as dramatic as that word, but there's a shift in how we use some of these words in modern lingo and what they actually meant in their context, radically so to some degree. So as we dive in, let's just be prepared for the text to not mean exactly what it may sound like it means at the beginning. So let's dive in. Let's read verse 1. Then we'll do a lot of context, kind of get our brains back into what's going on. We are, of course, in the middle of an argument. And so we'll read this opening to this piece of the argument, then think about the argument as a whole. So he says, For we know that if the tent... That is, our earthly home is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. All right, so you know where this is going, I think. We have a tent. Now, what do you think, if you were just going to jump off into the deep end and make a guess, what is the tent a reference to? The human body. And it's going to be replaced with what? Instead of a tent... A what? A a building from God. Now, Paul, he just used this analogy, and he probably just made a home run, worked perfectly for him. Unfortunately, in our context, this could be misread. So let's remind ourselves what Paul is doing so that we understand why he's making the argument, and then we'll understand what the argument is actually saying. So first, remember, he's written this letter to a church who has rejected him. And only recently, very recently in Paul's life, has he gotten word that the church repented. And they're on his team again, at least mostly. They, they forgave him for the stuff he didn't do wrong that they think he did wrong. You follow what I'm saying? So there's still that sort of, well, you can't quite forgive me for something when I didn't do anything wrong. But he's working with it, and he's trying to forgive them for the stuff they don't realize they did wrong. And so they're working out their relationship. This is a precursor letter to him showing up and them having these conversations. So he's still defending himself when he writes this letter, even though technically they've forgiven him and technically he's forgiven them. They still haven't really hashed out all the details of the problem that they had. And so the church had rejected Paul. One of the reasons that the church had fallen to this ideology was that they looked at the Apostle Paul's life, and he did not meet the new standard of their new gospel. Their new gospel is what we in our day might call the prosperity gospel. If you follow Jesus, everything's going to work out fine for you. If you pray hard enough, your car won't break down. If you pray hard enough, you have enough hope, you won't get sick. You know, if you just follow these biblical principles, you'll never have financial problems at all. You sprinkle a little Jesus in your marriage, you'll have the best marriage you've ever seen. It's prosperity gospel. Unfortunately, none of those things are true. The Bible doesn't say any of that. In fact, it speaks quite contrary to virtually every one of those points. And the apostle Paul's life did not line up to the, to the prosperity gospel at all. Everywhere he goes, instead of having all this glorious success, he gets stolen to death. He gets beaten he gets shipwrecked, he gets persecuted, he literally gets run out of town, he's get imprisoned, people hate him everywhere he goes. Sure, he gets some success. There's believers, there's new churches forming in all these places, but the Apostle Paul's life doesn't exactly look like a poster for the prosperity gospel. And so Paul, in this letter, is having to say that all of this stuff you used to criticize me over is actually, that's my resume. That's proof that I'm a child of God. My suffering is proof that God is doing something. Me being beaten, me being persecuted, all of that is proof. And better than that, this is by design how God does it, not just with me, the Apostle Paul, but with everyone. And this is where we got into last week. Jacob preached on the jars of clay. What's the idea of a jar that's made of clay? What can that jar do that maybe a metal jar could not do so easily? Break. The whole point is God puts his treasure in earthen vessels that break. And when they break, they don't fall apart because the glory within them holds them together. Yet every time they break, every time they crack, every time a little um, ostrichai, if you want to fancy where that's the term for the piece of the pot that breaks off, a little shard from a clay pot, when that breaks off, glory shines out. This is God's design. And what it is, it's not just that God wanted us to suffer because it makes him look good. It actually models what Jesus did on the cross and his subsequent resurrection. Jesus suffered and then ascended to glory. This is the biblical paradigm for the gospel. So we suffer and glory is revealed. Now the glory ultimately is future, but the glory can and regularly happens and we feel it and experience in the present. We suffer and then we are glorified. There's suffering that leads to the glory of Christ. So this is what Paul has been arguing. And so he ended last week, the end of chapter four, he made the statement, uh, verse 17, I just want to reread it. It says, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all As We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Now, the unseen thing here, future resurrection, future glory, the glory that is to be revealed. What's the thing that is seen? Persecution. Suffering and sorrow and pain, backstabbing, broken relationships. That's what they see every day. But we don't walk by sight. What's he going to say? We walk by faith. We look to the future. We look to what's coming. So that's what he's set up. Now, with all of that in mind, he's going to now hone in on what exactly is coming so that we can set our eyes, put our faith, our vision On the right thing. Because we can have faith. Faith always has an object. Quick side note, but just to get ourselves using the vocabulary the same way. Faith is basically synonymous with trust. And we do not faith in blank. right? We faith in something specific. So if I'm sitting in a hammock, what is my faith in? It's in the hammock, right? I put my faith in the hammock if I'm sitting in a hammock. You're sitting in a chair. You put your faith in a chair. There's no such thing as faith that doesn't have an object. You can't trust nothing. You're trusting something. Now, what I want to make sure we do as we look at this is trust the right thing. Oftentimes, Christians think, well, I trust that God is going to fix my car. Well, that's not what the Bible says Though, Not a single passage, it says you can have faith that your car will run. Not a single passage says that. Not a single passage says you'll have great health. Not a single passage says if you just trust the Lord, all of these things will work out. Really what you're trusting is some particular prosperity gospel teaching. You're trusting that this thing will happen. That's not what we trust. We specifically trust in what God is doing on the other end, where he's taking this. We put our sight on him. Now with all of that in mind, Paul's gonna hone in on what exactly that means. So for we know that if the tent... That as our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. So the basic simple truth here is if your body dies, has your hope vanished? No, not at all. There's no loss of hope in any sense if your earthly tent is destroyed. In fact, Paul is going to go on to say, if anything, hope now is amplified. Goodness now is amplified. So you've got this earthly tent now, it's interesting, the Greek word here for tent is where we get our English word skin. That makes sense, right? Because what, what would a tent have been made of 2,000 years ago? It would have been a hide. It would have literally been skin. So there's a dwelling of skin. That's one option. It's a funny analogy, though. A dwelling of skin, because what are you? Right? A dwelling of skin. All right, so that's the first part. So we know that if this dwelling of skin, tent, our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building, so there's a play on words in the Greek, you don't see it in the English, so it went dwelling of skin, now it's dwelling of dome, All right, think about what's a dome, you think of the word dome, what jumps into your mind, some large religious structure, right, you think of this grandiose structure, it's the same word we get a lot of English words from, kingdom, dome, kingdom, what's the idea, the entire domain. There's this huge area that's it's, it's more glorious. You get the idea? The dome here. So dwelling literally it goes from dwelling of skin to dwelling of dome. So right now we have this dwelling of, you know, just little tent. But what's coming is a building, a dwelling of dome from God, a house not made with hands, eternal. In the heavens. So we have a contrast going on here. We use this contrast a lot, except we do it incorrectly. The Bible has a very different notion of this contrast than we tend to. And I want to compare earth and heaven. All right, so let me give you the knot. So the difference between heaven and earth, first points in your outline, this is not the difference of physical versus spiritual. We have a tendency to interpret it that way. That is not what this means in any sense. It's not physical versus spiritual. Can something be heavenly and physical? Absolutely it can. Where's Jesus right now? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, right? literally. So we've talked about this before. Jesus has always been God. Then he incarnated. He became a man, and that man was that actual literal flesh. Like, Could you examine it under a microscope and see DNA? Yes. If you cut him, would he bleed? Thank the Lord he did on the cross. He's a literal human being. Then he was buried, and then on the third day, what happened to that dead body? It rose from the dead. So Jesus bodily, literally, fleshly, with blood, heart beating, rose from the dead in a human body. Does he still have that human body today? Yes, this is Christianity 101. That's what we mean when we say he's seated at the right hand of the Father. All the ancient creeds say that. That's what they're talking about. The literal fleshly body of Christ is literally fleshly seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. So is he earthly or is he heavenly? (laughs) Yes, we would call him heavenly, but we do not mean spiritual versus physical. That's not what we mean. It's kind of like this. We're going to look at the analogy in two axes, so we're going to get kind of technical. So we think, most basically, if you were in the Bible, living in that world, and you pointed to heaven Let's be honest. If we did it today in this room, and I asked all of you to point to heaven, where's your default finger point position? Up, right? That makes sense, because when Elijah went to heaven, what did he do? He ascended in the chariot up. When Jesus went back to heaven, how did he do it? He ascended up. So this comes from their, their lingo, their system of thought, is you've seen Paul got called to the third heaven. Do you remember that? And he talks about that. So the third heaven is is not as complicated. We think about the levels. You know, he's a, why didn't he go to level seven or level 12? You know, all right, the third heaven is not complicated. We walk around, trees sway, and clouds float, birds fly, planes fly in the first heaven. All right? Then there's a heaven beyond that. Just think from their perspective. That seems to not be related because clouds can come by and they don't seem to move that sun around. The clouds can't affect the stars. No bird can land on a star or the moon or the sun. They're in their their other plane, another level. What do you think we call that? If this was first heaven, what's that heaven? Second heaven, but then there's one even further. There's one greater. There's one at a more excellent level, a more distant plane, something beyond creation itself or well, we tend to think of as creation, because technically even the third one's creation. But it's that other thing where God makes his majesty dwell, and Paul calls that the what? Third heaven. All right? So we have a biblical paradigm for up, but it's more than up. It's beyond. It's this other realm almost. There's a realm that is heaven, and then there's this place we call earth. And so we tend to think of the distinction as in, Awesomeness beyond and not really awesome here. Not that there's not awesome things here. There's Plenty of awesome things here. But do you not have a built-in idea that heaven is the better version of anything that was in both places? Heaven would have the better version. See what I'm saying? Now, that's part of the paradigm. Up there beyond, it's better. And here is not so much. It's kind of like greater than, less than. Not completely different than, just greater than versus less than, but let's take our paradigm of not just down and up. We actually need to lay it sideways on a timeline and think now versus later. The word eternal, you see what it said at the very end of that verse? We have a building that's eternal in the heavens. The word eternal, we by default think that word means last forever. And it technically includes that in the definition, but that's not what the word means. It's actually the word aeon, age, right? It's an agely house in the heavens, in the heavens, not necessarily in the heavens. You, you see the difference? We talk about this all the time when Jesus said, when he came, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember that God has taken his kingdom, he's invading this realm. He says, he makes the prayer and the Lord's prayer, "Your kingdom come. We want God's kingdom here. Your will be done here as it is in heaven." That distinction, but what's Jesus saying is happening? It's literally moving in now. And the whole plan for God is to unite heaven and earth. Ephesians 1 God is uniting all things. Heaven and earth will become the same place. That's future. So it's not just less than, greater than. It's now versus what's coming. And so we have an eternal body in the future, is what he means when he says in the heavens. So it's not physical versus spiritual. It'd probably be better just for our sake to call it mortal versus immortal. This momentary life will be swallowed up by greater life. So let's just keep reading. It says, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. So we're in a tent, and we want to put on the heavenly dwelling. So we've got two different buildings going on. Right now i got a tent. Later I want to wear a house. Are we talking about one being physical and one being spiritual? No. Which of these is physical? Both. This is key. That's not what they mean. When Jesus, all right, all right, just to, to make it even clear, we described one house as a tent. The other was not made with hands. Now, we might read that and think, oh, well, that means it's not physical. Jesus used the same lingo. To refer to how he would destroy this temple and build it again in three days, a temple not made with hands. Was Jesus' resurrected body physical? Was it literal? But the difference—it was heavenly. It was still physical, still literal. It's not made with hands. So we've got this fallen tent that we want to replace with the perfect heavenly dwelling which will be our resurrected body verse 3 if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked so naked would be what in neck am i saying it too southern naked <laughs> all right you don't want to be naked that is pretty southern I can't. i can't say it the other way N- naked naked na- i can't do it guys i'm sorry naked <laughs> that's the only thing from the sermon you're going to remember Naked. So what does it mean to be naked? I can't do that. What does it mean to be naked (laughs) in this sense? (laughs) Nobody. Being naked here is nobody. All right? And that'll be clear as we, we go down. We don't want to be naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed. That is fundamental to Christianity. We do not want to be disembodied spirits floating around in heaven. It's not Christian concept. In fact, the Bible has so little to say about going to heaven when you die that over church history there's been a strong debate about whether or not you do. It almost says nothing It does say something. It's not literally nothing. So yes, you do go to heaven spiritually when you die. But the point is there's so little content about that in the Bible that there's room for debate. That's not the biblical concept. We do not want to be unclothed. What do we want to be? But that we we would be further clothed. I don't want to be naked. I want to take off my dirty garments and put on nicer, cleaner garments. Well, what's this a reference to? This is physical, bodily resurrection. This is what Paul's talking about. This is his basis for hope. All right, so what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. You see his distinction. You've got mortality versus immortality. You've got broken versus perfect. That's not just the up-down distinction, that's a now-later distinction. This is what his hope is fixed on. You'll see Paul use lingo like, I want to attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's what his eyes are fixated on. That day, the redemption of our bodies is coming. His eye is fixed on that. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by what is life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. A guarantee of what? Resurrection. That's what the guarantee is for. He who began a good work in you, raising your spirit from the dead, will bring that work to completion, that is, raising your body from the dead. This is the biblical plan of salvation. All right, so the next section in your outline, the doctrine of resurrection. God will redeem us body and soul in the resurrection those things happen at different times right god will redeem us body and soul so we will go from earthly to heavenly in both categories of body and soul you followed my analogy we will move from earth to heaven just like jesus went from a, a body made by hands to one made not by hands just an illustration we do the same but we do it at two different times. Body and soul don't do it together. We are raised spiritually, or you could say solely, at conversion. The soul is resurrected from the dead the moment you become a believer. Now think about this. Can your soul get more resurrected from the dead than it is now? No. Either dead or alive. You can walk better. You can live better. But you can't be more or less alive you are raised from the dead completely spiritually at conversion then our bodies will be raised on the last day there are two different resurrections every believer experiences one at conversion we call it new birth being born again we call it regeneration all of these terms refer to the same thing you wake up god makes you alive in christ spiritually then your bodies will be raised on the last day. Therefore, let's go to verse 6. So, we are always of good courage. Now, what's he saying? What provides the good courage for him? His destination. Knowing that he is raised spiritually now, and that that will be kept as a guarantee by the Holy Spirit until it is bodily on the last day, he has good courage always. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Now, we got to not mishear him. He's not saying he's away from the Lord in a general, all-encompassing sort of way. Does Paul feel like he's with the Lord daily? All, All the time. He is in Christ. Christ is in him. That's not what he's talking about. He means literally, spatially, where is Christ? the body of Christ. I should be more Yeah, I got to be careful here because if we say where's God? That's a bad question because he's everywhere. But when I say where is the Lord, I mean the incarnate flesh God man Jesus Christ, he's in heaven. So if we're here, he's not here in that sense. You follow what I'm saying? So if we're here, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes. We are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So that is the intermediate state. So if you want to know does the Bible teach that we spend time with Jesus before the resurrection. The answer is yes, clearly, but just only like a couple of times, but it is here. This is one of those times. Yes. So he would rather be with the Lord right now, but we've read in Philippians, that's not his plan. So... Whether we are at home or away, we must make it our aim to please him. So where's the direction Paul is going? He sees the resurrection of the dead. That's where his aim is set. He wants to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now this lingo, attain. This lingo, reach. Makes it feel like and sound like there's a possibility that along this journey, you get off course and you don't make it. Well, to make matters worse, let's read the next verse. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. Now, if you've studied theology, if you studied eschatology, you're probably familiar with this passage. You ever heard the expression the bima seat judgment? as opposed to the great white throne judgment. So the reason people use that lingo is the Greek word here for the word seat is bima, and bima means seat. It's not complicated. It's just that's the Greek word, and people use it, so I'm just saying it for you now. Bima, seat, judgment. And so really, bima, seat is like saying ATM machine. You know what I'm saying? Automatic teller machine machine. All right, so bima, seat, judgment is just saying seat, seat, judgment. That judgment, as opposed to Great White Throne Judgment. Now you probably in your mind, have a clearer picture of the Great White Throne Judgment than you do this one. If you think about the Book of Revelation, you think about the very end. God raises the dead, and He judges them based on these volumes of books that He has. You remember what's in those books? Their deeds, their certificate of debt is contained in these volumes of books. I'm talking massive volumes of books. However, believers Don't get judged based on that volume of book. They get volumes of books. They get judged based on a book, much smaller, much shorter, a lot less pages. What's that book called? Lamb's Book of Life. And that book contains only what? Not everything you've done, but just what? Your name. So one option, you can be judged on everything you do, or you can be judged on whether or not your book, your name, is in the Lamb's Book Of life. That's what happens in the atonement. Your pages torn out, nailed to the cross. We see that in Colossians 2. So, that being said, who is he talking about in verse 10 here? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is us, guys. We will stand before this judgment seat. It's not the great white throne judgment. This is not where our list of good deeds or bad deeds will be the basis of our salvation. That's the great white throne judgment. This is a different judgment. It's for us. We will appear before this judgment so that each one may receive what is due for what has been done in body. When he says in body here, what's that a reference to? Your time here. Your opportunity to serve Christ on this side of redemption, what you did, whether good or Evil. Now, interesting, the, the Greek word there for evil is not the usual Greek word for evil. It's actually the Greek word false. You know what English word we get from that? That was a trick. It should be obvious. False. You know, there you go. So, it false. So, rather, we could say you're going to be judged as a believer based on everything you did, rather positive or negative with regard to what you think. Kingdom with regard to the kingdom of God. We have a very false notion about heaven in evangelical culture. We see it as this equal opportunity, everyone is the same. You just get in, that's the only thing you got to do. You just you just get your ticket to heaven and you're set. Because on the other side, it's all equal, it's all the same. We're all cookie cutter, exact duplicates of one another because we're absolutely perfect. And you know where that's found in the scriptures? It's not. Jesus said, store up treasure in heaven. I mean, do we think he actually meant that or he's just trying to say something meaningful? you know, just, just do good things? Or does he literally mean store up treasure in heaven? When he tells parables about the talents and what's going to happen in the judgment, how you used your talents will impact how many talents you had on the other side is that just him saying man it's important he's just trying to motivate us to do good things or is he saying there's there's literally things going on on the other side that we contribute to right now the lingo is consistent the lingo is constant even paul already writing to this same church in first corinthians chapter 3 i want you to see this so he's comparing himself with apollos and with cephas He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. That's what he did. He planted the church. He preached the gospel. They got saved. And someone else, that is Apollos, is building upon it. Um, Let us each take care how he builds upon it. It doesn't matter which stage of the process you're working on. It just matters that you're building the house. In this case, it's the kingdom. You're laboring for the kingdom. You're seeking first the kingdom of God to use Jesus' Lingo, that's what Paul was doing, that's what Cephas did, that's what Apollos was doing. He says, nobody can lay a foundation other than that what is laid. It's the gospel, it's the only foundation. Jesus Christ himself is the only thing we can build on. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Is Paul saying here that there's some literal connection between what you do here and what happens on the other side? Absolutely, he is. This is Christianity one-on-one. This is the basics. Paul's saying he does not want to build with wood, hay, or straw. Because what happens to those things when they pass through the fire? They burn up. He wants to build with precious stones. He wants to build with gold. He wants to build with silver. Why? Because every one of us is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the role we played in the tapestry of God weaving His glory is going to be the basis for which we receive reward on the other end. This is how it works. There's glory set up for us in the day of glory when He is revealed and everyone's good done, well-done, good and faithful servant will be unique to what thing you did well. And if you didn't do anything well, well, you get in. Is that what you want Jesus to say? Or do you want to come to the judgment seat of Christ and know that you contributed to the story, that the way you suffered glorified the name of Christ, the way you followed Christ, led other people to Christ, the way you lived your life, painted a picture of the glory that was to be revealed, and that will become manifest on that day. Now, here's how I want you to think about this. We keep using that word faith. In Christianity, we always use faith to say this idea of believing in something that's unbelievable, which is not a biblical idea at all. I want you to think about Hebrews 11.1. You probably heard this or knew this growing up in church. Faith is the evidence of things unseen, the assurance of things hoped for. And so we see, hey, see, faith is connected to something that's not seen. Don't read that passage individually. That passage is written to a group, a collective, the church, and it's saying, You, when you put your faith in the coming resurrection, become the evidence to the world of that thing you hope for. You become the gospel visible when we live and suffer with our aim on Christ. We focus on him. We walk forward in spite of the pain, in spite of the suffering, even though we reach points like Paul where he said we despaired of life itself, but this was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead, when we can look at the suffering of life and say, for this momentary affliction is preparing me for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When we live this way, when we focus on Christ in this way, when our hope is in what is seen at the end, rather than what we see right around us, the world sees us and there's evidence of things unseen. There's assurance of things hoped for and the glory of Christ It's betrayed. Because when we get to the other side and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, let us stand there knowing that we manifested the glory of God in the world where we lived. It's not about us. We're not going to stand there and go, oh, look at how good a job I did. It's not the kind of judgment we're talking about here. The kind of judgment we're talking about here is we're going to see the glory of heaven. We're going to look back at life and say, I got to show some of that story on this side. I got to paint some of the picture of the cross, the picture of the resurrection, and the life I lived. I got to look like Jesus just a little bit, and the world was able to see it, and the glory of God was magnified. That's what the judgment's going to be about. So am I telling you that you need to worry about judgment that is coming? Yes, I am. In fact, we're not going to the next verse this morning, but I just want you to see what's happening next. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Fear of what? Paul has very high respect for the judgment that is coming. He wants to run that race as though he's going to win it. He wants to get to the end of the race and get the crown. He wants to get the jewel in that crown. He wants to labor until he can reach the end and say, I have fought the good fight. I have labored hard and I am ready for the rest that is coming. But we have a tendency to make Christianity much more of a just pray a prayer. Just secure your destination and don't worry about anything else. That's not what God has called us to do. That's not what Christ has called us to do. We follow Him. How did He word it? We take up our cross and follow Christ.